Colombia is a country that straddles two bodies of water, the Caribbean Sea in the east and the Pacific Ocean in the west. Separated by Panama, the latter of which is essentially a narrow isthmus, the Caribbean coast is lush and tropical, with swaying palms and white sand beaches that are known the world over. The Pacific coast, on the other hand, is decidedly different in both appearance and vegetation, resembling something more along the lines of what you'd see in America's Pacific Northwest. Here the coast gives way to rocky, hilly slopes, which are covered with cypress and other such trees. This part of the country is also home to a large rainforest, likely one of the wettest in the entire world. Known as the Choco, its average annual rainfall exceeds an astounding 42 feet, around 13 meters per year. Though such high amounts of rainfall have been conducive to plant growth as well as the thriving of several species of exotic fauna, it hardly seems like the place for a civilization to emerge. And yet, beginning around the mid-4th century BC, a culture burst onto the historical and archaeological scene there that would give rise to its impressive earthen mounds, beautiful ceramic crafts, and most importantly, sophisticated metalworking in gold and even platinum. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and let's brave this wild and unforgiving landscape to search for the elusive and mysterious Tumaco culture right now on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Nothing strikes a person's fancy quite like a glint of gold peeking tantalizingly out of the dirt. Let's not forget that it was tales of mythic golden cities and fabulous amounts of wealth that had originally brought the Spanish to the shores of what's now Colombia throughout the 15th and 16th centuries. They'd heard stories of El Dorado, for example, the fabled city of gold, hidden somewhere deep within the interior of the South American continent. Driven by greed, these conquistadores flocked to its shores in the hopes of exploiting its mineral riches for personal gain and glory. But it wasn't until the late 19th and early 20th centuries that a treasure trove of such precious objects began to be unearthed in Colombia's Choco rainforest, drawing the attention of archaeologists from both Europe and the United States. The first person to study the finds was an American named Marshall Saville, who visited both the Choco as well as a couple of sites off the coast of nearby northern Ecuador, where other such artifacts were found. These included various gold and platinum figurines, often depicting people, animals, and other perhaps divine entities. Saville was quick to note the sophistication of such pieces, and it's generally accepted amongst both historians and archaeologists that the Tumaco metalworkers were likely the first in the world to handle platinum. Upon his return to the States in 1910, Saville published his findings in various scholarly publications throughout the world, firing the public's imagination. Naturally, it wasn't long before others began flocking to the Colombian Pacific coast to see such discoveries for themselves. In 1925, a German archaeologist named Max Ulla made the first maps of the sites, particularly the island of La Tolita, off the coast of northern Ecuador. While there he uncovered various earthen mounds, known as tolas, inside which were tombs replete with rich grave goods of gold, ceramic, and platinum. His findings led scholars to believe that this particular site had served as a sort of Tumaco necropolis, as the number of burials unearthed there indicated that it served the entire region. In 1949, American archaeologist John Rowe, who'd risen to fame with his research of the Inca civilization further south in Peru, got in on the Tumaco craze by publishing the first work on the culture within Colombia proper, igniting at last the Colombians' interest in the subject. A few years later, Julio César Cubillos, a Colombian, published his own findings on the sites and is considered the first to use the moniker of Tumaco culture to describe the civilization. But while each of these men were integral in shaping the public's perception of the Tumaco culture, their research and conclusions weren't without their problems. Throughout the early to mid-20th century, the reigning theories surrounding ancient South American civilizations, particularly those in regions that were deemed not conducive to produce complex societies, was known as diffusionism. This concept proposed zones of so-called high culture, quote-unquote, that was spread to peripheries through trade or migration. 
Thus they believed the Tumaco culture to be on the periphery, while the greater, outside influence, thought to be from Mesoamerica, was the primary high culture that had introduced the Tumaco people to metallurgy, pottery making, and mound building. Cubillos himself thought that none other than the Mayans of southern Mexico and Central America had been responsible for these practices appearing in ancient Colombia. Thankfully, such a theory has fallen out of favor, due to continued research and new scientific and historical evidence, for I personally feel that it robs the Tumaco culture not just of its autonomy, but also its genius in these areas and more. Now that we've covered the history behind the study and research of this most incredible civilization, let's focus on what it actually looked like in its heyday. As previously stated, the Tumaco culture rose in about the mid-4th century BC, itself an offshoot of the earlier Chorrera culture that had arrived in the region a millennium prior. To give you an idea as to the broader world at that time, Alexander the Great had yet to conquer much of the known world into a single empire that would ultimately stretch from Egypt in the west to India in the east. Shangyang, a Chinese philosopher and statesman from the kingdom of Zhou, was implementing some much-needed reforms for the neighboring kingdom of Qin at the height of the Warring States period in China. And in what's now Iran, the mighty Achaemenid dynasty ruled over Persia at the height of its power and glory. Let's begin by examining the craft for which the Tumaco civilization has best become known, metallurgy. Gold, platinum, and a gold-bronze alloy known as tumbaca were the primary materials with which they worked. The earliest evidence of their manipulation of gold dates back between 915 BC and 780 BC, before the Tumaco civilization proper arose, in the form of a gold sheet that was unearthed at a site known as Las Balsas, not far from the island of La Tolita off the north Ecuadorian coast. Gold, along with the other two aforementioned minerals and alloys, were used primarily for decorative purposes, and were fashioned into such objects as ceremonial and funerary masks, rings, beads, and even dental inlays. Think of a sort of early grill. <laughs> they even fashioned it into delicate gold threads, which could be used to adorn clothing. Copper was used as well, though largely for practical objects such as tools for everyday use. But of the minerals they so skillfully crafted into enduring works of art, perhaps the most famous and important was platinum. It's believed that the Tumaco culture was the first to work this most precious of metals a staggering 1,400 years before European blacksmiths ever did so. To give you an idea, platinum was only handled in Europe for the first time in the 18th century. Due to its high melting point, such an achievement was inaccessible to Europeans until the Industrial Revolution. That being said, the Tumaco people had to develop a way to manipulate it without melting it. Such a process is known as sintering, and involved the mixing of platinum powder with gold or silver to create beautiful, stark white pieces with just a hint of yellow when mixed with gold, or pink when mixed with silver, creating luminous, exquisite two-tone pieces that, in the years since their discovery, have been highly sought after by museums, collectors, and sadly, even looters. Of course, the Tumaco civilization didn't just leave artifacts of precious metals behind. Their pottery and ceramics are also of note, and are some of the most sophisticated to have emerged from ancient South America. As the rainforest environment in which they lived was prone to flooding during the wet seasons, the earth provided a rich clay that was useful in the making of everyday objects. The most common vessel in use in their society was of a form known as the alcarraza, a sort of globular-shaped jug used for storing water. Dishware, such as bowls and plates, were also crafted, as were decorative vases. Each was colored using bright paints made from the dyes of plants and other natural materials. Red was the most common color, and was often mixed with black, brown, cream, orange, or white. Aside from practical goods, they also used this abundant clay to create figurines. Of the figures that have been unearthed, they fall into three categories, anthropomorphic, zoomorphic, and hybrid. As you can probably deduce from the names, the first, anthropomorphic, reflect the Tumaco people themselves, showing everyday people as well as priests and chieftains in traditional dress. The zoomorphic, which is just as abundant as the former category, depict the various animals that the Tumaco culture lived beside and or hunted for food and clothing. These include various species of fish, birds, and animals. 
Finally, there's the hybrid category, which often portray mythic-human-animal combinations, most notably of a sort of man-jaguar mix, a legendary creature that can be found throughout Mesoamerica and parts of South America. Originally thought to be a representation of a shaman undergoing a spiritual transformation during a ceremony, such were-jaguars, as they've come to be called, are now considered to have been deities or else heroes from the Tumaco people's rich folklore. Pottery and ceramics also reflect how the Tumaco culture lived in its otherwise harsh natural environment. As no surviving structures exist, it's now known that they built temporary houses, temples, and other buildings sourced from local wood and plant life. Evidence of this has been backed by the discovery of several post holes within the area, indicating a sizable community of largely agrarian people. The question, though, is how exactly did they farm, as the rainforest in which they lived was subject to so much rainfall and flooding per year? The answer was quite ingenious. These innovators dug elongated channels into the soil, while forming the dirt they'd extracted into parallel mounds known as camelones. Thus, a sort of elevated field was created in which rainwater could collect in the channels while the camelones remained dry, allowing for the planting of various crops even at the height of the wettest times of the year. The channels, now full of rainwater, would also double as irrigation ditches that would be used to attract fish and other wildlife that could be hunted. A series of causeways also crisscrossed the dense rainforest, which helped people get from one place to another when flooding and other high rain levels made walking on the ground proper impossible. While much of the daily life and religious practices of the Tumaco culture can be inferred through their metalwork and ceramics, less explicit is one practice that's thought to have been ritualistic in their culture, beheading. Several clay figures have been unearthed depicting people, likely priests, displaying decapitated human heads in their hands. Some researchers believe that the Tumaco people, like some indigenous cultures in the Caribbean and elsewhere in Meso and South America, made shrunken heads from either deceased relatives or prisoners of war to carry around as good luck charms. While this may sound grim, the truth is that we don't know for certain whether these depictions are symbolic or reflective of an actual religious practice that was common in the Tumaco culture. One Colombian archaeologist, Maria Fernanda Ugalde, challenges this notion, arguing that there isn't enough material evidence to confirm such a practice, and likens the iconography with Christ on the cross. She counters that, like the cross, a holy symbol throughout Christendom, crucifixion was not commonly or largely practiced in such lands after Christ's death. In much the same way, Ugalde believes that the decapitator figures are merely symbolic and representative of a story from their religion, whose details haven't made it to the present day. For about seven and a half centuries, the Tumaco culture thrived in the rainy region between southern Colombia and northern Ecuador, creating masterpieces of pre-Columbian art that still dazzle researchers and museum-goers alike. But then, sometime after AD 400, the coastal areas of this region began to become severely depopulated, for reasons that are unknown to us. Their settlements were abandoned, largely as they were, with their organic structures rotting and returning back to the soil over time, leaving only the rich ceramics, pottery, and precious metal artifacts behind. To this day, we don't really know for sure what caused their sophisticated society to collapse, but the incredible items they created offer a tantalizing glimpse into their culture at the height of its glory. Thank you for listening, and I hope you all have been having a great week. I first became acquainted with this most incredible culture through a visit to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem five years ago, where I saw one of the famous clay were-jaguar figurines on display. That image has stayed with me ever since, and I'm so glad to have shared my discovery, quote-unquote, of this amazing culture with you at last. If you enjoyed this and all my previous episodes so far and would like to support this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly contributor. You can do this by visiting podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and clicking the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so through all podcast slash streaming platforms. Don't forget to return next week for another installment of the History Loves Company podcast. 
because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. Have a great weekend, everyone, and I'll see you all next time.